Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. has a genetic condition called Fragile X. We only found out about it about three years ago when my nephew Flynn was diagnosed with Fragile X at the age of seven. Following that, my other sister's son Leo, who was also seven, was diagnosed with Fragile X. Then my niece, who was 11, was diagnosed with Fragile X. At that time, I had a 20-month-old and an eight-month-old and they were both also diagnosed with Fragile X. Most of the people that I encounter have never heard of Fragile X. For this episode of This Pathological Life, um, Dr. Travis Brown, can you just sit to the side? Because we have someone taking your spot as the guide and the chaperone for this episode. Are you replacing me, Steve? Uh, Just testing it out the waters. Um, Our special guest for this episode, which is all about Fragile X, is Graham Southers. He's the Director of Genetics for Sonic Pathology Australia. Graham, welcome back to This Pathological Life. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And I've noticed on this visit, you're now usurping Dr. Travis Brown out of his role, (laughs) bit by bit. I'm I'm, I'm saving every moment that it lasts. (laughs) Now tell me, Fragile Fragile X, why do we need to be talking about this? The Fragile X syndrome, um, it's, it's a, a, a weird name. I'm not suggesting that the people who have it is weird, but it's mm. not a, the typical name that we would have for a syndrome. And it describes um, a, a fascinating cytogenetic abnormality that occurs in uh, people with the commonest form of intellectual disability. This is a condition which embraces some fascinating history, Uh, cytogenetics, molecular genetics. There are profound uh, social and psychosocial uh, dimensions to this and some uh, very real uh, grief for the families who are caught up. And as I say, this is the most common form of familial intellectual disability. Graeme, in the first part of our episodes, we like to dig back into the history. So with this Fragile X syndrome... What is the story of discovery behind this? How did we transition from patient to diagnosis? Um, there's a bit of personal history um, in this, Steve. The, um, I was involved in a very exciting part of this story, but I'll let, go back to prior to my involvement. Back in the 1970s, um, there was growing recognition of the potential for there to be particular genes on the X chromosome that are involved in intellectual function. Let me just step sideways for a moment to explain the significance of that. If you that the, the brain um, uses almost all the genes that are, are active in the body are active at some point within the brain. Mm. Um, it is uh, uses an incredible diversity of genetic information to make the human brain. If you have an error in uh, one of those genes. It may cause a problem in hand formation or heart formation or kidney formation or whatever. And there is often, not always, but often some associated uh, impairment of intellectual disability. And so the early field of clinical genetics 
recognised that a combination of structural abnormalities and some uh, disability in terms of intellectual functioning often went hand in hand and was the basis for categorising syndromes and disorders and tracking down the genes and so on. But it was recognised in the, the 1970s that there were some individuals, in particular boys, mm -hmm. who had intellectual disability without any other apparent problems. So this was a uniquely brain problem without there being any collateral damage, if I could put it that way, in other organs. And this seemed to be, in particular, a thing amongst boys. that occurred more commonly in boys, this sort of non-syndromic intellectual disability happened more commonly in boys than in girls. And uh, there was a, a very astute clinician called Gillian Turner in Sydney, in New South Wales, who um, was uh, the, the clinician involved in caring for children who were in residential care. And she describes having um, a, a bit of a, a brainstorm at uh, 10 o'clock one night. Next day, she's back there at the institution going through the records of the children who were there and assigning them into two piles, those who had non-brain abnormalities and those who did not. And when she looked at the pile of those who did not, she found more affected brothers in contrast to everybody else. So this raised, it's indirect, very clinically based, but highlighted the potential for um, the genes causing this brain-specific intellectual disability being on the X chromosome. Let me remind listeners of the, the basic genetics here. Mm. Boys have one X chromosome, girls have two. If a girl has one of these mutations on an X chromosome, she's got a second X chromosome yeah. which acts as a backup, and so she's largely protected from the impact of, of this. But a boy does not have that spare. And so the boys are particularly exposed to the potential problem arising from a mutation in one of these brain-specific genes. So what Gillian really founded was the field of uh, X-linked mental retardation, as it was called then. We may refer to X-linked intellectual disability these days. Mm. And this was building on work from Robert Lurkey, who was a psychologist in the US, who had made some similar observations. What really um, set uh, Jill apart from uh, other people in this field was her clinical involvement and how carefully she worked at identifying families and using the information in the family's pedigree to provide counselling advice to the young women in these families about their risk of having an affected child. And that remained her, her passion throughout a very productive professional life to ensure that the scientific insights were clinically useful. It's people like her, like Gillian, that just make my heart beat proudly for these people who have that in, and have the wherewithal to dig deeper and go above and beyond to find a discovery that affects so many people and can you know, shed light on a scenario. It's a, yeah, it, it, they're it, our heroes. It's a great story. Yeah. Um, at about the time as, as Gillian was um, uh, resolving this, it was recognised that in some of these families, when you did um, chromosome studies, because they'd done chromosome studies to try and find what the problem was and the chromosomes looked normal, but if you did a particular manipulation in the, the chromosome analysis, you could identify that there was what's called a fragile site on the end of the X chromosome. So that this is an area where the chromosome, again, when you do this particular manipulation in the cell culture, it becomes very thin. And in fact, the end of the chromosome can break off. 
Now, I want to emphasize that this is something that's happening in the laboratory. It doesn't happen in real life. Okay. We're not doing the manipulation in humans, but if you do things in the test tube and deprive uh, the test tube of certain uh, nutrients and, and so on, chemicals, you get this consistent phenomenon. And it occurs in some of the um, affected boys who had this extinct intellectual disability. There is a particular uh, fragile site at the end of the X chromosome associated with excellent intellectual disability. And in the late 70s, it became clear that, that this could be drawn together as a, a particular syndrome called the Fragile X syndrome. And uh, one of the leading lights in, in this cytogenetic work was uh, Grant Sutherland, a very eminent uh, South Australian cytogeneticist um, who, who did some of this work in Glasgow and then came uh, back to South Australia in the, the 80s and established a very successful cytogenetics laboratory at the Women's and Children's Hospital. So we have both Gillian Turner in New South Wales and Grant Sutherland in South Australia who uh, really provided the foundation for understanding this this complex, confusing, wonderfully rich uh, and devastating uh, conditions. There's a very strong Australian connection there. And let's make it even more uh, strongly tied because you mentioned you had a direct link to this story as well. I did. And I had the privilege of working with um, Gillian Turner uh, in Sydney in 1986 and she knew that I was coming over to in 1987 to work with Grant Sutherland on as a PhD project on the Fragile X syndrome. So Jill, in her inimitable style, said, um, "I've got a job for you, Graham." And one Saturday, we went out to a, um, a small suburban home in Sydney, and Jill had contacted the matriarch of this large family with excellent intellectual disability and said, we want to have a gathering so that this young Dr. Southers can collect blood samples from as many of you as possible to take to Adelaide to do the research to try and find out what's going on in your family. And it's a credit to Jill's relationship with the family and to the family that they did that. And I arrived to what was in some ways a both heartwarming and bizarre experience of having this extended family all gathered together for a common purpose for, for their family and a large number of intellectually disabled uh, boys and men who were, were there with their family members. The thing, interesting thing about this family was that it was a large family, clearly motivated. They had excellent intellectual disability and no fragile sight could be found. So the key question that was um, puzzling uh, Jill at this time was, is this really the Fragile X syndrome or is this something else on the X chromosome? That was the unknown back then. So in the course of the afternoon, we uh, were able to take blood samples from about 30 members of this family, um, and I had the clinical information that Gillian and her co-workers had provided, came over to South Australia in 1987, and before tackling the Fragile X syndrome families themselves, Grant Sutherland got me to try and sort out with this particular family, is their abnormal gene close to the fragile site. So was this, in a sense, a, a masked form of Fragile X syndrome? And it turned out that they had a gene completely elsewhere on the X chromosome. And so this was the first evidence that, in fact, we have multiple genes along the X chromosome which can cause intellectual disability. And the Fragile X is, we still, I've got, there's another chapter coming for that. Mm. Um, but uh, the Fragile X is only one of a number of genes that are in this category. In these recordings, my eyebrows often raise, not as much as they've been raising so far, but I think we just need to pause because I want to come back and go into the pathology, the scientific uh, investigations that followed from this setup. Mm-hmm. 
he was scared of everyone. So whereas you'd walk around in the pram with my girls and, you know, strangers would always come up and smile and, you know, they'd smile back and get a response, Michael would scream if someone came up. That was, I guess, the first indicator to me that maybe something wasn't right and I can remember... Um, I sent him to daycare early because I was going back to full-time work and I remember when he was one saying to one of his lovely carers, do you think there's something wrong with him? And she going, oh, he's a little bit quirky. I felt like I wanted to cry when I was asking that because nobody wants there to be anything wrong with their child. You might have a suspicion and you don't want it to be true. Having narrowed that down, the question was, uh, can we go from this small fragment of a chromosome to the actual mutation itself? And that was picked up uh, by one of uh, my colleagues, a, um, a Dr. Sui Yu, who's a genetic pathologist here in Adelaide, and she was doing her PhD. She picked up where I, I left off, um, and uh, she and again the team did an absolutely stunning job in using a different range of techniques, which I won't describe here, um, I'm not an expert in them, uh, to identify the actual gene. And what they, um, and that was a, a singular event, there was a bit of a race happening, a friendly race, but nonetheless <laughs> a race between an Australian group and uh, a, a group in the US, actually two other groups in the US, um, and uh, we did uh, very well um, in, in this space. And I think the really um, important thing was clarification of the genetic basis of the fragile X. And as we've already touched on, this is a, at the time, it was a unique form of mutation um, that we hadn't seen anything like this before. And so there was a lot of head scratching and a lot of creativity in thinking, how can we explain, it's easy in hindsight, but at the time, how can we explain these observations uh, to account for the, uh, the unusual genetics of the fragile X? Um, and the, the short answer was that this is indeed is a, um, a dynamic mutation, a mutation that can change in size. And the nature of the mutation is that it consists of a repeat. So if you remember that the DNA code is made up of A, G, T and C, shorthand for, for the four chemicals that make up the genetic code. Um, there is a particular repeat, a C, G, G, that triplet is repeated a number of times. And in, in folk who do not have the Fragile X syndrome, there can be anywhere between 5 and 54 of these repeats mm -hmm. in the gene. I find that observation itself extraordinary. That's a tenfold difference in the number of repeats in uh, this part of the gene, um, and yet it doesn't. It, it's part of just the normal variation that we see in the human race. It's a subject for another day. Yes. If you looked at uh, children, who boys who had the Fragile X syndrome, you found that they would have in excess of 200 of these repeats. They oh. might have 250, they might have 2,500 or more. So a dramatic increase in the number of repeats. And that was very clearly associated with intellectual disability. What was then challenging was what if you're in the middle zone? What if you've got between 55 and 200 repeats? What's yes. the situation then? And that's what is now described as a premutation, where a person is intellectually normal, but may have intellectually affected children. And we'll come back in a moment to, to dissect that apart, because it's going to depend on the gender uh, of, the, of the transmitting parent, if I can put it that way. 
So let me describe some of the the dilemmas that we had about the Fragile X syndrome and what this new understanding of the mutation uh, could could explain. We knew that there were um, boys with intellectual disability, um, and it turns out that they had the full mutation. That's fine. Um, A boy inherits his X chromosome from his mother, Mm -hmm. and we found that some mothers had intellectual disability and some didn't. And when I say intellectual disability, it was much milder than in their sons, but they, they weren't as bright as perhaps their, their peers um, or, um, in some cases, their, their sisters. So there was clearly some impact on intellectual function, albeit not as striking. But there are other mothers who were carriers uh, who, who were passing this mutation on to their children who were clearly intellectually perfectly normal. So what was going on here? It transpires that the the mothers who uh, did have some impairment of intellectual function um, almost always had a fully expanded mutation. They were protected from the full impact of that because they have a second normal X chromosome. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, it's a much milder situation than you see in the boys, but there is some tangible impact if, if you know what you're looking for. Um, and it's very much understanding, in a sense, being conditioned to go looking for something like that once you have a boy identified with the Fragile X syndrome. So I'm um, thinking of the clinic environment. I'm not talking about walking down a supermarket and, and, and being able to pick mm-hmm. uh, carriers out. That, that does not work. But in the context where I've brought a, a child has been brought to me with the Fragile X syndrome, you can often pick whether mum is likely to have one of these expanded uh, mutations. There are some... Some of the mothers who were intellectually perfectly normal who um, also had an expanded mutation, and yet they seemed to be relatively unaffected. Um, We think that there's a a reasonable explanation for that in uh, a phenomenon called X-inactivation. And again, a little sidestep, you might remember uh, back from the med school days, um, that a man has one X, a woman has two, but in every cell in the woman's body, one of the X chromosomes is inactivated and the the biological reason for that if we can think of it in terms of a reason is that both men and women have one active x chromosome which is doing the x chromosome work in the cell it's just that the women have a second inactive copy it's purposely switched off so that the number of genes active in a woman's cell is the same number of genes active in a in a man's cell again fascinating story (laughs) and if by chance the X chromosome with the full mutation is switched off in the majority of a woman's cells so that she's relying on her normal copy, she won't have intellectual disability. So that's a, um, a proposal to explain at least some of these situations where a woman can have a full fragile X mutation and be completely unaffected by it. But the more interesting scenario is women who have a, um, who don't have a full mutation, they have that pre-mutation. They had a repeat range in the number sort of 55 to 200 or so. And these women are indeed intellectually normal. And the mutation, as it passed from mother to son, expanded tenfold or more to become, to cross that threshold and cause the problems in the affected child. So this is what I mean by a dynamic mutation. It changes over the generations. Let me pick up the story of the woman who has a pre-mutation, who is uh, intellectually unaffected. Mm -hmm. We do now know that uh, those women are also at increased risk of developing premature menopause. Nothing to do with intellectual ability. 
Um, and uh, when I say premature menopause, menopause potentially by the age of 40 or even earlier. Gee. So we don't have a good explanation for that. Um, we do know that the um, ovaries in women with a premutation tend to produce more ova, more eggs, and in fact, they're more likely to have twins for that reason. <laughs> but trying to tie this all together to uh, understand the the, um, the Fragile X intellectual disability story um, remains an ongoing uh, project. Um, these women with a premutation are also at, at slight risk of developing a, um, a tremor disorder in later life, over the age of 60 or so, where they can develop a, um, a progressive tremor that um, can interfere with some of the activities of, of daily living. It's not uncommon for uh, there are other causes of tremor at that age as well. So um, it, the, the diagnosis is not always straightforward clinically, but we've, the genetic test will indicate whether or not uh, tremor in an older woman is, is indeed due to this. And my reason for giving you that background is that we now need to go a step back into the woman's history to her father, because remember, she got one of her X chromosomes from her dad. Yes, of course. And it became, had become clear in the 1980s that there were some men who had this premutation who were totally unaffected. So here we had an X-linked disorder of intellectual disability that could be passed on by an intellectually normal bloke. And that conundrum uh, baffled many heads. There were all sorts of theories being thrown around. Uh, it was a clever epidemiologist in the US, a lady called uh, Stephanie Sherman, who uh, clearly articulated this Sherman paradox um, and was able to demonstrate from studying the families that these men do exist. They must exist from looking at the family trees. And we had no idea why. And so they have this uh, premutation again. Um, they're not at risk of intellectual disability. They're not at risk of premature ovarian failure because they don't have ovaries. They are at risk of developing that tremor disorder in later life. And when they pass their premutation onto their daughters, it does not change in size. So every daughter of a man with a premutation will be a premutation carrier herself of right. the fragile X. But when any of the daughters goes to have a son, there is a chance that the premutation will either stay as a premutation, intellectually okay, or that it will expand beyond the threshold and cause intellectual disability. So you can see why this is tiger country, and that if we had a, um, a podcast whiteboard, we'd be up to about whiteboard number 16 at this point, <laughs> noting all the elements of it. That's the perfect time to pause briefly. We'll come back and we'll have a look at the pathology behind it. The most common physical feature of Fragile X Syndrome is just how normal and ordinary an individual appears. This is important because people, including professionals, often mistakenly believe that if you have a genetic cause for your disabilities, then you will look different. There are some subtle aspects. The head can be slightly largish and longish with protruding ears, which often flush with high levels of anxiety or emotion. There might be a high arched palate, which can affect speech and language, and a longish flattened nasal bridge. The chin can be quite protruding, and usually there's quite widespread lax ligaments hypermobile joints, flat feet, and occasionally some eye and hearing problems, and perhaps even some heart murmurs. I want to focus in a little bit more on the GP application uh, of this. And 
just first of all, just some background. So how prevalent is Fragile X in, in the community? Um, good questions, uh, Travis. And uh, it is important that uh, GPs be um, aware of this condition because it is so common. Um, but it's also so challenging because it presents in different ways. There is no simple here is the presentation, do this test. Um, it, it, it's a, a protein disorder, can present in different forms. So it also, that, that consideration also complicates um, studies of the prevalence of fragilex uh, in the general population. There are many causes of uh, intellectual disability and without doing the specific uh, tests and doing it on a large population, you will uh, potentially end up with some, some biased ascertainment. Mm. What we can say is that if you do uh, a population study of, of uh, healthy women, we find that about 1 in 250, 1 in 300 has a premutation. So that's, that's very common in terms of a genetic, uh, a, a problem at the gene level. It's not a problem functionally for the woman in terms of her intellect, but there are the collateral problems that, that I had discussed earlier. Um, when we look at the frequency of the Fragile X syndrome in terms of affected boys, it's about one in every few thousand. But I'm going to decline to be much more specific than that because the numbers do vary from different populations and different surveys. The challenge for the GP is to know when to uh, when to think of, of doing the test. Um, the the test, by the way, has been rebated by Medicare for uh, oh, over twenty years now, and so there is a, a, a very good, reliable test for identifying full mutations and uh, premutations. Um, so this is helpful both for making a diagnosis and for helping inform uh, women about their risk of of having affected children and potentially helping men work out whether they're at risk of affected grandchildren. But that's there's a, we could have quite a long discussion about the appropriateness and ethics of that. But I do want to flag that this test is readily available and, and any, any doctor can order it. So the question, come back to your question, when should it be considered? Um, despite the complexity, I'm going to touch on, on uh, four particular scenarios. The first is where you have a child of either gender... Mm -hmm. who is displaying uh, evidence of, of developmental delay. And I say either, recognising that there are some girls who have this who will uh, it'll, it'll become evident um, early-ish in life that they've uh, got the fragile, or that they've got intellectual disability of mild degree. Um, and the reason it is important to identify these uh, as soon as possible within a family is the couple, the parents, may be wanting to have further children. And the earlier you can make the diagnosis in a child, the less likely they are to have an affected brother. And it's just a matter of the, the parents having the information that they want to make informed reproductive choices. So I'm placing a, um, I think it is very important that the doctors who are um, commonly involved in providing the day-to-day -day care of uh, young children be mindful of the possibility of uh, intellectual uh, disability and that uh, if that is there, then they either need to refer the child for paediatric assessment, and that would be the comprehensive way of doing it, um, or if indicated, consider testing for the Fragile X syndrome. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, this is tiger country, and so referral for specialist advice may be the more appropriate path, but it's not a mandatory path. 
The second scenario um, is where a child has uh, features of autism spectrum disorder. And for a child who is um, uh, has um, high intellectual function and uh, some features of, of ASD, autism spectrum disorder, uh, that combination commonly referred to as Asperger's syndrome, um, they're unlikely to have the Fragile X syndrome. But um, for children where the, the intellectual situation may be less clear, as may be the case with, with kids with autistic features, um, or children where there's intellectual disability, then uh, it is worth, it, again, checking for the Fragile X syndrome. Fragile X is one of the causes of, of autism, autism spectrum disorder. I've emphasised the importance of that testing in children. I've flagged that it's um, important for, for uh, the parents so they can make um, informed reproductive choices if, if they're at that stage of their lives. It's also important for, for the child, for the support that they're going to need to have um, in school. It's important for teachers, for allied health professionals. Um, and it is still, sadly, all too common for this diagnosis to be made in children in late primary school or even later. And, and that's not the way it should be. It's mm. not fair on the child or the parents or indeed the teachers who've been trying to sort out uh, what to do for this child. The other two areas where this testing can, um, is, is recommended is if a woman has premature ovarian failure um, and a man or a woman who has evidence of a late onset tremor or ataxia. Um, this is one of the causes of that. So one of the joys of being a GP is that you get to see everybody at multiple stages of life. One of the challenges of being a GP is that you need to cover everything across all of those stages of life. And Fragile X is just an exemplar of that because we have these issues in early and late stage life. So if a GP is considering, if Fragile X just pops up, let's say they've got a child in front of them yep. and they give clinical notes of you know, intellectual disability or developmental delay. Is it a discussion about the child just testing or do you actually recommend mum and dad be tested at the same time and, mm. and go through that way? So it's a good question and I'll, I'll circle back to my comment about specialist involvement because um, intellectual disability, the, the evaluation and the, the overall management of a child with intellectual disability is, is a huge area. Um, again, with all the domains and dimensions of, of, of life in a society. Um, that's where I think it's important uh, to to have specialist um, advice to uh, help manage the complexity of that situation. Fragile X is not something to be assessed or managed as a one-man band. Um, within the context of that uh, general practitioner specialist assessment, um, whether it be initiated by the paediatrician or whether it be uh, arranged through the, um, the general practitioner um, in consultation with the paediatrician, um, you'd start with the child because you want to make that that's the child's the one who's presented to you with the um, a diagnosis of course um, and and uh, resolve the question one way or the other with the child. I would uh, caution against testing mum or dad at that stage until they've got some more information. So they need a chance to sit down with a, um, a genetic counsellor or a clinical geneticist uh, to, to step through what the implications are. Because I've touched on some pretty um, significant issues here, mm. both in terms of the child, and you can readily imagine issues of, of grief and guilt and embarrassment and all those sorts of things in relation to a child's diagnosis. Um, but then we've also got the confounding factor of the heritability of this and the potential um, implication for other members of the family. 
and the implications for the, the parents' uh, health themselves if they are a premutation carrier. Mm. So uh, it's best not to launch into the testing and to have a chance to uh, educate a couple, give them time to work through things. The, the parental story doesn't have to be done in a hurry. I'd say, too, that the diagnosis in the child, the genetic test in the child, doesn't have to be done in a hurry. It may be appropriate to take some steps to sort that out. I just don't want the delay to be due to ignorance. If, if it's a considered choice to take some time to make this diagnosis and work it up in the family, that is, uh, from a medical management point of view, absolutely fine. Just make sure you've got your eyes open and not missing something that should be resolved. From a laboratory point of view, the testing is hard, difficult, straightforward? Um, look, from the, it, it's now routine. So okay. this is test is widely available through genetics laboratories um, around the world. From a technical point of view, it's actually uh, one of the more difficult tests because that particular CGG repeat is real. When it's repeated hundreds or thousands of times, it's really hard to get that measured accurately and so uh, some very inventive stuff has happened over the years to come up with uh, particular tools and there are now um, very particular devices that are used to measure this particular repeat it it needs in a sense a special box to be able to to do the analysis rather than a generic tool that we could apply to everyone is there any last words you have for gps in this area when they're when they're thinking about fragile x or, or developmental delay Look, I think the, uh, the the challenging thing here is, in a sense, the pervasive nature of Fragile X, that um, it does crop up in different guises, in different ways. Um, and in the busyness of um, being the, the clinician responsible for a young child and you're dealing with the coughs and the colds and the milk intolerance or whatever it might be, it's sometimes uh, a bit difficult to fly the helicopter a bit higher and say, um, how, how is this three-year-old going? You know, let, let me step back from the acute crisis, the urgent, and ask perhaps a more important question, how is this kid going? Um, and it's, uh, so I'd encourage GPs to, to, in a sense, factor that in to their assessment um, on a regular basis. And particularly if a parent comes and says, I'm concerned about, to listen and follow that through. Um, my experience of that large Sydney family where we gathered and collected the blood samples to work out where this gene was located was that the, the, the grandmas, and there were a number of them, and the great-grandma, who was the matriarch, they were so valuable in helping to gather information about expected patterns of behaviour in the family. And they could clearly identify um, who was affected in their family and who wasn't among both the, the male, the, the men and women. Um, and so listening to parents, to grandparents, to get that clue that if they think something's wrong, fly the helicopter a bit higher and ask the more searching question. So that would be my first take-home message. My second take-home message is this is too big for any one person. Um, I don't profess to be an expert in the Fragile X um, there, uh, um, it, it's a multidisciplinary uh, challenge, um, which uh, families will will need all sorts of support and support each other. Uh, there are heartwarming stories. There, there are devastating stories uh, out of this, and I think it's important that we, as a society, ensure that the resources are available to support people who who are confronted uh, with this. 
Let me uh, close just with a little, uh, it's, a, it's a historical anecdote. I mentioned that you can, that, that premutation can stay uh, stable for many generations before it expands. And um, a few years after the mutation was first uh, described by the, the Adelaide team, there was a, a lovely little paper that came out from Sweden. Mm-hmm. And they, um, the, the clinicians had identified, I think, half a dozen boys with the Fragile X syndrome with expanded repeats. And because of the parish records held in the Swedish uh, villages over the last 500 years, they were able to link these uh, half a dozen boys back through multiple generations of men and women to a distant ancestor back in 1500 and were able to show by genetic means that it was exactly the same bit of the X chromosome that had been inherited down this myriad of lines to these uh, boys. But it was only in that last generation or two that the premutation had expanded to cause the Fragile X syndrome. So this is something that can carry implications over generations. And, and I can see the question forming on, on Travis's lips. Well, what, what happened recently? You know, what, what political event or toxin or what caused the expansion? As far as we know, it is chance. And we just, the, the Swedish investigators chanced upon this family. There'll be plenty of other families that have the same sort of process happening, but it hasn't chanced in a way that drew them to our attention. What a note to finish on. Graham Sullis, thank you again for joining us. Director of Genetics, Sonic Pathology Australia. Thank you. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au. And you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.